you saw plenty of wildlife, you know, koalas and wallabies, kangaroos, kookaburras and stuff like that. So in the first 48 hours, we'd already ticked off a lot of the, uh, those typical Australian animals that we already had hoped to see. It was, it was lovely, but I mean, we were in Australia at the time where the, they were having the huge bushfires. Yeah, <laughs> never a dull moment. Like, um, we honestly don't go looking for it. <laughs> it has a reputation as being like an, uh, an adventure capital. So if you want to take the only place you can do it, shark boats that dive underwater and then jump out of the water. If you want to do jet skiing, whitewater rafting, uh, downhill mountain biking, all that kind of stuff, parachuting, uh, paragliding, that's the place to do it. Hi, I'm Emma and this is Trip Report, the podcast that interviews travellers about their amazing trips, giving you tips and inspiration or simply to travel vicariously through their travels. This is episode 13, Australasia with Josh and Annie. This is part three of their Trip Report, so if you haven't listened to other episodes, please do check out episodes 11 and 12 too. Before we get into the interview, if you've liked this episode, please do tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way for this podcast to grow, and if it grows, I can continue to bring you wonderful interviews about amazing places. So back to the trip report. At the end of the last episode, Josh and Annie had just finished their amazing journey down South America and had spent some time in Patagonia. They then got a flight back to Santiago and on to Australia, where we will pick back up. So where did you go, first of all, when you went to Australia? So we, uh, we flew into Brisbane and that was at the beginning of December and we were just about to, basically we were going to spend the, the Christmas with Annie's family who live in Brisbane. So uh, the start of that, we, we'd only just kind of arrived for about 24 hours and then the family took us out to... And North, North Stradbroke Island or Straddy just off the coast of Brisbane, but half an hour boat ride. And we'd fortunately, our flight from South America was like an overnight one. So we managed to sleep on the plane because my family, we arrived and were like, oh, we're going away tomorrow. And we were like super tired. But it, yeah, it could have been so much worse. We weren't that jet lagged, but it was straight on to a long weekend with my, my uncle and his wife and three kids. Oh, cool. And what was that like? What was the island like? It's beautiful, really, really beautiful. It's a popular tourist destination for uh, locals, a kind of weekend getaway destination, gold sand beaches, kind of well-kept bush in in the middle. So you saw plenty of wildlife, you know, koalas and wallabies, kangaroos, kookaburras and stuff like that. So in the first 48 hours, we'd already ticked off a lot of the... Uh, those typical Australian animals that we already had hoped to see. Uh, it was just a really relaxed pace of life. You could walk down to the beach from pretty much anywhere on the islands, you know, fresh seafood sold just off the shore. And just, yeah, a really fantastically Australian vibe. It's, Beautiful weather. Australia is like the Aussie Butlins, but without the clubhouse. It's, yeah, it's just like a, everybody has a little holiday home over there, and but it's still like inhabited all year round water sports sand dunes to drive your your ute across all the seafood you can eat and all the beer that you can possibly get on a ferry like it's all you need and how long did you stay there was it just the weekend yeah we were there from from the friday to friday to tuesday morning okay and then what did you do did you stay in brisbane yeah 
So we just got to know the family, really. It had been so long since Annie had seen them, and I'd never met them in the in person. We'd always been on the other end of a Skype call at Christmas, so uh, it was with them finally in the flesh. So, yeah, we just got to know the, the city a little bit better and the local area and relax because we'd been on the road where every single element of, of existing from washing your clothes to finding a bed for the night to working out where the next meal was going to be coming from was an emotional effort more so some places than others particularly with the language barrier so to be in an english-speaking country to be in our own room and to be with family and the build up to the holidays was just something we'd 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 missed and i think since we stayed in Canada or in America with friends, it was the, the first time we'd, we didn't mind missing a day. You know, we could probably have a day off where you could just throw on a shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops and not have to venture out into town to go and find something to eat for that night. So we were just enjoying relaxing. Yeah, it was a real switch off moment. Like we don't, like you can relax. You don't have to think about anything. Like I could just, like Josh says, shorts and a t-shirt on and just chill out and considering kind of all the craziness that you'd experienced in South America that must have been quite something to just relax <laughs> it was it was lovely but I mean we were in Australia at the time where the they were having the huge bushfires oh okay <laughs> yeah. never a dull moment like, um, we honestly don't go looking for it it's, it's just a yeah Fortunately, it wasn't an issue up in, in Brisbane, but it would be an issue after Christmas when we, we travelled further down the coast. But in the meantime, we were we just enjoyed the local area. There's some We went a little way down the coast for a couple of day trips down to uh, the Gold Coast and... Surface, Surface Paradise. Surface Paradise. So Bay. Those kind of popular tourist destinations, popular guestway locations, and, and well-known stops on the way between kind of Sydney and Brisbane. But day trips out, day tripping distance from um, from Brisbane. Uh, so yeah, we uh, we did a few trips out there. I would say Surface Paradise for me, not my favourite. It's like any beach destination where immediately off the beach is you know three hundred high rise hotels, and it caters for that kind of holiday. I'm sure the surf is great, but we're not huge surfers, so. It wasn't a big deal for us. Byron Bay was a lot nicer, quieter, a bit more hippie. Byron Bay is just where all the wealthy hipsters of Australia and New Zealand congregate. And it's like, if that's your thing, that's cool. But there are, I'm sure there's nicer parts of Australia than Byron Bay. It's like everything is artisan. Nobody's wearing any shoes. Like all the beer is really expensive, but... Yeah, if that's your thing, then it's lovely, but it was a bit too hipster it for us. <laughs> it, 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 all its origins were very much in the, the hippie movement of the 60s and 70s, and that's where it, it kind of had its roots. But at a certain point, the amount of visitors reached a critical mass where people would visit because people were visiting, and it kind of lost a lot of its original charm just by the sheer quantity of people turning up. The original hippies had moved in the 60s and 70s and were still there, would say it changed a significant amount but it's still a very pretty bit of the country and we did stay in a a van uh, in a camper whilst we were there which added to the experience 
yeah, nothing like sleeping in a sweat box in 35 degree heat <laughs> for an authentic experience. AC is definitely a premium, but so is accommodation. Yeah. So the camping sites are very, very popular and there are lots of options just outside of town. So yeah, if you have a tent, it's a great option. If you have a car you can stay in, great option. If you want to stay in town, expect to pay, you know, top dollar for, for somewhere to stay. It's just very exclusive. And book months in advance. Don't just go on a whim because <laughs> you will be sleeping on a park bench. <laughs> and how did you organise the camper? Was that a family camper or did you hire it? Uh, no, that was through Airbnb. Um, so we hired that. I would say if you're hiring a, a camper, or any vehicle uh, of any sort, even if it's just like a tent awning or something like that, that you're trying to stay in. Uh, and it comes with a requirement for a camping berth, like somewhere to stay on a, uh, a pitch on a site. Factor that into the cost because Airbnb or whatever site you're booking through may not say that up front. They might just tell you the cost of the initial rental. And then when you arrive and say, oh, hey, I'm, I'm booked in for X and Y vehicle or such and such pitch they'll then charge you for the pitch itself so it, it initially looks a lot cheaper it still was substantially cheaper than a room but um just be aware that there might be some hidden costs if you're if you're staying at a campsite which is not something we had considered up until this point so did you stay completely in brisbane you mentioned that you went to sydney so did you just travel down in the camper or how did that work no, we didn't. We didn't hire a camper to travel in. We literally just slept in a camper while we were in um, Byron Bay because that was the only accommodation that was available, and it then cost extra to actually drive the van. But we did Gold Coast, Surfers Paradise, Byron Bay, and okay. Sydney. So Sydney was after Christmas, so we we'd spent Christmas with the family. Had a wonderful time there, uh, and then kind of a few days after that, we we picked up, packed a, a small bag, so we weren't carrying all of our luggage this time, just a, a small day sack that we could use as carry on, and we started the next leg of our journey, which was going to be a circle from Brisbane all the way down through Sydney, and then south to north New Zealand and back again. Uh, that first step of that was down to to Sydney. I looked at options for bus. Uh, rental car, train, those kind of options. But actually, it was not just faster, but actually cheaper in the end just to fly down to Sydney. Uh, And when we arrived there, it was not too evident that the fires were going on, uh, although the city itself was pretty quiet. And occasionally, you'd have... It was a bit smoggy. Yeah, sore throat or or slightly irritated eyes from the particles in the air. But it wasn't really evident until we went out into the, the Blue Mountains... Uh, on a day trip out on a Sunday, which is at the perfect time to go because public transport costs are capped. So uh, no matter how far you're going or how many times you're getting the public transport, there is a maximum amount you can spend on a Sunday. So usually it's a really popular day trip to go out to the Blue Mountains on a Sunday because the train ride there and back is very scenic and doesn't cost much. I think it was like $12 for a return journey. About six pounds. Um, and usually you have to get on that train really early in the morning because it's packed with locals because they want to get out of the city and into the countryside where there's lots of really good hiking. It was empty. Uh, we were kind of one of the only people in the carriage. There, there was some two other groups of tourists yeah. on that train with us. And it was, yeah. It's just some determined <laughs> tourists that were absolutely going to see it whilst they were in, in Sydney. 
uh, when we arrived it started raining uh, which probably put half of the remaining people on the train off and they probably turned around and then we walked out to the three sisters mm-hmm. uh, which is a significant rock formation out there and um, that was probably only about a hundred and less than 100 meters away from the viewpoint and we couldn't see it uh, the, the smoke was that thick from the forest fires that it actually wasn't visible it was a wicked combination of like low cloud mist and smog so you were sort of there were lots of people stood on this viewing platform looking in the direction of where this rock formation was and like no you can't can't tell that it's there because it was just so thick so we sat out and had a picnic for about half an hour and our luck always being with us um it cleared for long enough that we managed to see the rocks but all of the uh, the cliffside walks around there were shut off at that point just due to the ongoing risk so that was that was pretty much the day we, we spent a lot of time in the local coffee shops because they yeah. were desperately short on on customer at that yeah. point because nobody was turning up because of the fires so we started to have more coffee than we would ever drink normally um to one to stay out of the rain and smoke and two just because every cafe on the street was pretty much deserted mm. and then headed back uh, a little bit earlier than we were initially expecting back into the city but not a bad day out and i'm sure now now the fires are, are out it, it's a beautiful place to go and the, the views will be absolutely spectacular from up there and so you how long did you spend in sydney we were there for 10 days i think yeah, and, and, nine or ten days, and did all the touristy things you'd expect down to the, you know, uh, down to the Opera House, the Harbour Bridge. Oh, we went out to that. There was a when we arrived, there was like a an art weekender type event going on. So lots of street markets, and there was a big uh, inflatable like maze thing, Sid Sidfest. That was it. So there's lots of music, arts, and all things like cultural celebration so we took advantage and did and did lots of that and sampled lots of um delicious food and again just sort of used it as an opportunity to explore a new place but slowly because we had 10 days we did head to the the, probably the most well-known beach in uh, in sydney which was manly beach Yeah, yeah manly we got the ferry across to manly and walked around the headland and then had fish and chips on the beach and they were yeah banging fish and chips definitely the other thing which we did which because we had a we kind of had a, a day spare at the end where we'd, we'd kind of slowly walked around pretty much every quadrant of the city we'd done most of the things we wanted to do including walking tours yeah and a crime museum which was a bit of an offshoot it's not far it's just outside the park that's um, opposite the the opera house which was actually really interesting. It was all about kind of the photography of the time and the crime related to it. But the thing we did on the last day, which I think was probably a highlight for me, was one of these small islands. So we just got on a a ferry uh, headed north uh, under the bridge to one of the old islands. It used to be a a military location. Then it was prison for a temporary period of time. Uh, and then it was a, bridge, uh, a boat building, shipbuilding location for years, through, through the war years, insidious war years, um, and then up until relatively recently. So it's got all three elements of these things sitting on the island. You can just wander around it at your leisure. There were lots of students there using it as um, a backdrop for their kind of photo uh, opportunities. Cockatoo Island, uh, Cockatoo Island, 
and I'd really recommend it actually it was way more interesting than I was expecting it to be a nice day out take a picnic with you you can even camp on the island if you want to um, it's set up kind of military style green tarp tents on the edge of the water a good way to spend a half a day not something that's necessarily on everybody's to-do list in Sydney but I, I had a good time there I thought it was um, much more enjoyable than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. So then from Sydney you went to New Zealand? That's right yeah so flew into South Island to Queenstown and, and that was our start of 10. So we had booked with a company called Kiwi Experience. Kiwi Experience. A bus service called Kiwi Experience. So they have regular routes that they run just around South Island, just around North Island, and north to south, back the other way and Across, a, yeah. and a complete one that does north, south, all the way around, all the way back, a hop-on-hop-off bus service, uh, much the same as we used in Peru and Bolivia. Um, also offering additional activities, much like uh, Bolivia Hop and Peru Hop. I- I've got to say, thoroughly recommended. They, always, they were always there. The communication was relatively good. Their app's terrible, but their website's, website's good. Their drivers are really enthusiastic. Nine out of ten are locals. Yeah. yeah and they can absolutely tell you stuff that you just wouldn't get any other way uh, and if you're not hiring a, a car although it's not unfeasible to do that because of course there's a boat between the two islands so you could drive an entire loop and drop it back where you started i'd recommend uh, kiwi experience as a way of bussing around uh, in a slightly more organized tourist friendly way um, rather than just using the local bus service which is equally as good um, but actually the price difference is, is not that much so we started off in Queenston and decided we'd do a bungee jump. Um, because what else do you do when you're in Queenstown? So it's the, it's the AJ Hackett Bridge. It's the site of the first commercial bungee jump uh, in the world. And we did a, a, a uh, tandem, tandem jump there. Yeah. I, I've done a couple before, but it was the first one for Annie. There was no way I was jumping off that solo. So I had to be attached to somebody who was definitely going to jump. Otherwise, there's no way. But then, as is always the way with us doing these things, I'm always the one that's really apprehensive. And Josh is the one that's like, oh, it's fine. And then at the end, Josh is the one that's like, oh, I feel queasy. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it again. But no, it was, it was really cool. It has a reputation as being like an, uh, an adventure capital. So if you want to take the only place you can do it shark boats that dive underwater and then jump out of the water if you want to do jet skiing whitewater rafting uh, downhill mountain biking all that kind of stuff parachuting uh, paragliding um, that's the place to do it and, and it has that kind of atmosphere it's a bit like being in Banff or you know those kind of mm. ski town uh, yeah. fields um, because it is kind of up in the mountains it's a little bit alpine looking and there's lots of kind of hostels around the center um, it's on the edge of a beautiful lake as well so yeah I'd say really good place to start uh, we did day trip out on the steam ferry uh, which takes you out across the lake out to the other side there are options paddle to- steamer yeah the paddle steamer there are options to go and sit on the other side and have your dinner and come back the journey back has a, a proper sing-along with a guy playing a piano and, you know, a proper old-timey as you're heading back across the lake. The views are spectacular, as you'd expect for New Zealand. Um, if you've seen any of the Lord of the Rings, you know what to expect. It's beautifully mountainous, wonderfully green. Yeah, really, really pretty. We did take a day trip out to... Milford Sound. Milford Sound. Yep. Really scenic. 
we were lucky there because we were about two weeks ahead of significant flooding which washed away uh, the roads down there and there was a rescue attempt to to pick up a few of the hikers that were heading out in the Milford Sound Circle so yeah we missed that by a couple of weeks yeah we dodged that one so yeah tick one for the Sleemans um, avoided, <laughs> avoided the flooding just um, we took a boat, uh, so included in that trip was the, the bus ride out there, which is a, a fairly lengthy bus ride. But unless you have got an awful lot of money, um, you can't actually stay in Milford Sound. The only place you can stay is if you take the boat out, you stay at a, a location further down the coast, and then the boat brings you back the next day. You can't actually stay in the Sound unless you live there. So your best option is day tripping. Uh, from Queenstown, is quite a long way. There are closer places to day trip from, but it can absolutely be done in a day. Um, and once you've seen it all on the way out, there's nothing to stop you having a snooze on the way back. But we didn't get back at too late of a time. We just had to set off relatively early in the morning. I think six in, we got, we left at six in the morning and we got back at like half seven. Good wildlife, uh, kias and kakas and... The one that begins with a K. Something else, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we were starting to kind of, catch up on the New Zealand wildlife um that was kind of the last thing we did in, in Queenstown uh, and then we got on our first Kiwi experience bus in the morning um and headed out to the first stop it has strict stops so you can't uh you can't just jump from one place to another over a day um you have to stop and this it stops so this one stopped at Lake uh Takapo which we probably wouldn't have stopped out out of choice, but actually it was really worth it. Um, so Lake Scapo is known for being one of the best places to see the night sky. There's an observatory there. It's a, a clear sky area. I think it has a special terminology. So when we got there, um, all the lupins in the field were, were out and there is a little lupin field it's marked on Google just loads of beautiful pink, purple, red lupins out at the side of this incredible, uh, incredibly blue lake uh, because of glacial, uh, glacial dust or glacier flower. So when the rocks are, are rubbed by glaciers, it becomes very, very powdery. That seeps into the water and it gives it a kind of a milky blue appearance, which is just beautiful. And the sun reflects off it and the sky reflects off it. Um, and it is just really uh, sensational. That evening, we did a late night by hiking up to the observatory and waiting for the sun to go down and just laying out uh, and watching the stars because the sky was just spectacular. And you can do observatory tours where they'll, you can actually use the implements there and observe the local celestial bodies and whatever is out in the sky at that point. We just went up to have a look. Yeah, and if you're tight like us, you'll just walk up the mountain and lie down in the grass just outside the fence of the observatory and watch watch the sky <laughs> with with an app on your phone trying to work out what's what and it was yeah i think that was a more valuable experience than paying to go into the observatory i think if you pay about i think it's about one pound 25 probably for the app now it was free but i think you've paid now for sky safari which is the app that we we're using you can track whatever's in the night sky so when we were in the southern hemisphere we had no idea what we were looking at that was a really good way of spotting uh, constellations we're not used to we got on the bus the next morning so we only stayed there the night but it arrived mid-afternoon uh, they offer um, a bit of a guided tour around the local area if you want it. So the next morning we got back on the bus again, 
no problems with communication, turned up on time, picked us up at a different location that everyone else stayed because most people were using the accommodation that was recommended by Kiwi Experience. I would say it's not necessarily the cheapest, uh, it's just the easiest. And if you're on a long Kiwi Experience over a week or two weeks or three weeks and you're going to keep getting on it with the same people, I would recommend staying with everybody else because then you can turn it into a bit of a party bus. But we were using it as a form of transport as much as anything. So we tended to stay longer than other people. And then we stayed in different places to other people as well, because I'd usually book ahead with Airbnb. We were a little bit older than the other, than the average traveller on this, on the Kiwi Experience bus. And the, nobody was inviting us to any parties. How dare you? Speak for yourself. That's probably because we were fall, falling asleep <laughs> on the bus. Like, oh, these guys look crazy. Let's invite them for some beers. <laughs> and then the one, the one night we did book a night in accommodation that was recommended by Kiwi, they were like, oh no, we don't use that one anymore. We stay in this one over here. And we're like, <laughs> so we, we wanted, we're going to force ourselves into the party. And now, we, <laughs> now there's nobody saying that. Uh, so the next stop was uh, Christchurch. Predominant for one reason in particular being that they'd recently had the, I say recently, in the last 2011, uh, there'd been the significant earthquake there. And there were still signs of that. So they've still got the temporary cathedral up. The old cathedral is still in ruins um, and has far more pigeon visitors than it does worshippers nowadays because it, the whole end of it's down. Um, they've got the new uh, temporary cathedral up instead, which is all made of recycled cardboard, which is fascinating. I've never seen anything like it. And they have the chairs display uh, out the back. Uh, behind that, it's uh, an art display with a chair for everyone who lost their lives during the earthquake. So Christchurch... International Antarctic Centre. Yeah, so Christchurch, much like um, Pasconia, is kind of the civilian route into the Antarctic. So some of your speakers that have done some really good chats about their experiences usually set off from Argentinian Pasconia. Sure, yeah. If you're military or you're a researcher, you usually set off from Christchurch in New Zealand. Um, so that's where the big AC-130s um, and military uh, vehicles head out from. So just outside the airport, and if you're passing through Christchurch and you've got a long layover, I would thoroughly recommend just nip outside. Literally on the other side of the road is the Arctic Antarctic Centre. Just outside is that experience. Um, and it was really comprehensive, actually. You got to ride on a, uh, what, our army called a, a Viking. It's basically a cross-country tracked vehicle that's not particularly comfortable, but a really interesting experience. And they go up and down hills and over weird terrain and, and give you an experience of what it would be like inside one. Hold on tight. Um, the guy opposite me definitely clanged his head pretty hard on the side when we went over the first bump. So just be aware of that. It was a really cool, like, unexpected, oh, let's, you know, it, it was in the guidebook, but it was, it was only in, like, a little tiny section. It wasn't really something that was real hand across to you and we got there and it was a really like valuable experience because all the little activities were included in your entry price and like most places like that in the UK you pay your extortionate entry price and then oh it's another tenner for to do that and then another tenner to do that like you got to see the penguins being fed have a ride on one of these all-terrain vehicles and go inside a room and go for a snowstorm experience and it was all included so basically you sit in a, a big fridge um, covered then, with some snow and 
very fast wind. It's very cold and then they turn the fans on to simulate uh, an Antarctic storm. You get given uh, very woolly jackets with you know, kind of fur-lined hood, but it's still pretty chilly in there and it gives you an idea of what it would be like. You also get to pet some huskies outside as well. So yes, you get to pet some huskies. Has all, has all the experiences you could possibly want from your Antarctic visit. Um, so yeah, again, thoroughly recommended, really good for kids uh, and big kids too. There's lots of activities there and it's as much a museum to Antarctic exploration as anything else. So lots of stuff on all the polar expeditions that you might be familiar with, like the Scots, uh, the Scots trek out and they've got, you know, relics of his visit and the stories um, of that kind of period of polar exploration. So everything really worthwhile, I'd say thoroughly recommended from, from my point of view. <laughs> from there, we took a, a day out to Arthur's Pass. So if you head so there's a really well-known train route, uh, route that goes between Christchurch and the other side of the islands that heads through Arthur's Pass. But And it's a very, it's an old train route. It's very, very scenic. But again, inordinately expensive, as you'd expect. So instead, it was much cheaper for us to rent a car. Um, and we rented a car, the smallest one they had, and it was really reasonably priced. And drove that up into Arthur's Pass. Um, it's a huge national park. It's totally different from being out on the coast because obviously you're right up in uh, the mountain pass. Really good place for seeing New Zealand wildlife and fantastic walks, uh, but also some really picturesque land uh, on the way out there as well. Um, waterfalls, interesting roads that kind of head crisscross over the valley floors. Uh, some interesting places that looked uh, that have been used in film sets, for example. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, so that series did some filming there on Castle on Castle Hill, which is you drive past past it to get to the Viaduct Bridge. Yeah, it was it was really scenic, um, and yeah, it was probably the closest we felt to home for quite some time. But whilst we had the rental car, we also took another day trip out to. Uh, so there are two two towns in New Zealand that have kind of maintained their unusual colonial history. Uh, one is a French town uh, on the South Island, another one is a German town in North Island. Uh, so we, we nipped out to this French town on a day trip. Again, really scenic, felt a little bit like a Cornish fishing village in some respects, but it's got kind of, some of the old buildings there had been maintained. So it just had that slight french uh feel to it uh, and there's a lot of french cafes there as well that have kind of capitalized on people visiting for that reason lots of coffee lots of pastries it was called akaroa um so yeah an hour and a half drive from christchurch and it's not nice easy road it's not far it's not far distance wise but it's such a bad not bad condition road but it's so windy and hilly and very slow but as you can you might be able to tell from the the terrain in which it sits it, it much like most of new zealand it sits in a, what used to be a volcano which is why it's so craggy um so you have to kind of head up one side of the the old cone and back down the other side to get down to it it is quite nice though we had a really good picnic there it's a pleasant day trip out and there's a few places you could take scenic detours on the way out to go and have a look at the places so that was kind of the end of our stop at Christchurch. Back on the bus again. Um, consistent theme with all our travelling. Back on the bus again. And then we headed up to Kekora. Uh, I think it was our next stop. Um, 
really incredibly memorable, not this name apparently, but um, as soon as we arrived there, we booked onto this activity that Kiwi Experience were offering because we didn't want to pass it up. And that was uh, snorkeling with wild dolphins. So just as we were coming down the coast into uh, into the town, you could see the bit huge ponds of dolphins out to out in the sea, and we didn't want to miss that opportunity. So signed up for that almost immediately. That was a really awesome experience. We hadn't planned to book any activities through Kiwi Experience because, like, there was no. This is where the website and their app falls down. There was no like information about what that activity was that you could read before taking the journey that you could then go, Oh yeah, I'll do that. So everything was always like a, it was offered to you on the bus and you had to take it on the bus. So it, it was always a bit of a pressure thing, but that was one of the one, the only thing we did. Um, we we're like, yes, we have to do that. Like, and the, the driver was really like having it up. Wasn't he? He yeah, was, he said it was absolutely worth doing. And, and I'd agree with him. Yeah. Like uh, only a couple of us didn't sign up for that. So I think, they probably felt like they should have. So basically, you get on the boat, they take you out there. There's lots of restrictions about when they can and can't go out, how often they can go out, how often you can stay in the water with the dolphins, because it's they're really keen on uh, conservation as well as as much as anything else. And a lot of your money, in terms of how much it costs to actually do it, goes back into conservation schemes, because of course, if they don't look after the dolphins, their business is gone. So it's in their best interest to make sure the dolphins are as happy as possible. These pods are from, you know, 20 or 30 up to hundreds uh, of dolphins out in the water. The boat will go out, get all your snorkeling gear on, a really thick wetsuit, but it is a wetsuit. Um, so bear that in mind, considering the weather, it was, the water was cold, but, you know, not totally unpleasant whilst we were there. If it had been a few degrees less, I think it probably would have been quite uncomfortable. Um, and basically you go out on the boat, the boat gets ahead of the pod as it's swimming along the coast and then you all jump out and pop your head in the water and see the dolphins swim past you and swim around you and they tend to like pause and try and find out what you are as they're going past. Then once the pod's past you, everybody gets back on the boat, the boat goes further down the coast, ahead of the pod again, you jump out and you just continue that process basically until your time's up uh, or the pod moves off and disperses. yeah, it was really exceptional. Um, but the, the dusky dolphins are one of the most playful dolphins. So they appear to love the fact that you are in the water with them and they'll sort of swim around you in circles and then like come right up next to you and then just suddenly disappear. And they are very curious and very playful and they're like most dolphins as the boats go as as the boat's moving away, they're like riding the wake and doing flips and yeah, it was like it was really cool, really really cool. And what made it all the more entertaining is that they um, told you that if you, when your face is in the water, if you make a noise like a dolphin, they come up really really close. So, so when you're sat outside, uh, when you're sat above the water, everybody else has got their heads down. You can hear this coming out of the snorkels like yeah, we're doing terrible dolphin impressions. it's it's not working you all sound ridiculous convincing <laughs> no dolphins no. Uh, that that's what we are um but enough there's about them. 30 people in the water going <laughs> <laughs> um there's also a really big um colony of seals fur seals um there which you can just walk slightly outside of the town and see them 
smelly, noisy, um, boisterous, but... Also a very big, at the time that we were there in January, very big colony of seagulls and aggressive seabirds <laughs> who were being defensive. So yeah, there was the, the where the seals tend to hang out is also quite near a nesting area. So there's a fairly well delineated kind of path you have to go around so that you don't walk in the nesting area. But clearly the seagulls don't know where the path is, so um, they, they might be perturbed about you they, being there. They don't regardless. follow the same rules. Um, we were really lucky that there were lots of baby seals there when we were there, so yes. they were kind of playing and basking in the sun and flipping around in the water. There was one that was just so chilled out in a little rock pool that we really thought it, it had expired, and then all of a sudden it just moved, and it just like super, <laughs> super relaxed and yawned and then sort of swam off a little bit and then disappeared and then came back to his little spot, which was like a good five or six metres away from the rest of them. This one was just like chilling on his own. <laughs> it was really nice. <laughs> um, so that was our, our last full stop in, in the South Island. Uh, from there, we got back on the bus again. Went to Picton. Uh, Stopped for a couple of hours in Picton before we got the ferry over to Wellington, um, which we're told we were like was a particularly good day normally it's an incredibly rough crossing um and it's very windy but actually we were really lucky it was quite smooth uh, new zealand is well known for being really windy as well so that combination means that if you're not a great traveler on on ferries you can just nip across by air so that took us to wellington yeah um where we kind of got into the other side of New Zealand. So the north was a bit more commercial, a bit more inhabited. Um, so we kind of got into more touristy stuff. In Wellington, sometimes called Welly Wood, we went to the Weta Studios where you can kind of... So Weta make a lot of the props for films you might have seen. District 9, Lord of the, Lord Rings, of the Rings series, Hobbit. that kind of stuff. They did the, the the most recent Dark Crystal series. They make a lot of the stuff for that. So it was a real nerd delight. That was that said, it wasn't the best tour we've ever been on, no. and it was pretty expensive for how long you spent in the Weta Workshop. There are definitely better tours, and in terms of museums or or things to go and look at, uh, the museum, the actual main museum in Wellington is is far better. Uh, and it also has some of Wes's products in there. So there was a First World War uh, memorial um, uh, set up in the museum, temporary set up that they had. Um, and Wes had created these huge figurines um, of. Uh, based on real figures. people, yeah, based on photos of real people. Accurate, right the way down to kind of the hairs on their hands and things like Texture that. Texture of the skin, sweat yeah. on their face. Um, just spectacular models and if i remember rightly that if that museum wasn't free that was pretty it much was, a handful of bucks it, like, was, it was it was almost nothing it was a free it was a te papa museum in wellington um so it's free but there are like little other exhibitions that you can go into that were paid and they were those were extortionate like 40 bucks a ticket so we didn't we didn't do any of that the museum is extensive and we easily spent a whole day in there just looking at the free stuff um, New Zealand is uh, well known for uh, its uh, Maori culture and how it's 
it's better than a lot of, I'm not saying good, but better than a lot of uh, Western countries uh, about how it integrates with its indigenous population. That museum was a, a really good opportunity to see some of that, some of that history, the, some of those props. Tim Papa was definitely like making more of a focal point of Maori culture and heritage. The city itself, Wellington, is really nice. It's just a modern city. It's exactly what you'd expect, right on the water's edge. Um, has all the modern conveniences. It also has... Uh, Zealandia. Within walking distance, really. Yeah. Uh, so we walked out there, we got the bus back. Uh, a place called Zealandia. I, I absolutely recommend it. Really do recommend it. Um, and not just a visit. It's, a, it's what it calls a predator-free or... Uh, predator restricted it's a, area yeah. acres and acres and acres of lands in the mountains just up uh, just above the city but it's not uh, the fence is only you know six feet eight feet high it's just to keep out rats and other uh, rats. predators that might eat eggs off the ground rats possums and cats and as a consequence the bird life there is spectacular and I have to recommend going at night. So we went out. If you buy a night ticket, it gives you one entry to the day, uh, which you can stay for as long as you want. So you could literally spend the entire day wandering around the park. And it's huge. So you could spend the whole day wandering around the park and not cross your path twice. And you will see those Ikea, Kaka, um, other native kind of species. Ikea, Kaka, uh, Takahi. Yeah. It's really well signposted. The birds are fed in certain places, which they, they know it's there. They are free to leave at any time. There's no netting or anything, but um, they come there because it's safe. So your, your chances of seeing birds are really good. If you go and do the nighttime tour, uh, not only do you get to see the glowworms, which are fantastic, and if we didn't get to see the glowworm cave, which is a fairly well-known tourist attraction on the North Island, but was out of our way, you can see the glowworms out in the wild, um, when you're doing that walking tour and of course the highlight of any bird watching tour because obviously we're clean but keen bird watches uh, of any bird watching tour in new zealand is the kiwi um and a nighttime tour gets you really close to, to kiwis they can never guarantee it but we saw four in the end by the end of um the tour and actually one of them was like just a few hundred meters away from the entrance as we got back in got back to the the um the office so it's pretty much just on the other side of the path as we were walking back uh, we just got to sit there and watch it do its weird thing they are curious birds they move in a way that's quite unusual for a for a bird something we did want to see whilst we were there and we were really happy we got to do it seeing seeing a kiwi or seeing you know the, the, na- the native wildlife is something that when we travel to places is something that we want to get ticked off and seeing a kiwi was definitely like probably the top thing on our list of things to do or see in New Zealand because you cannot see them anywhere else at all. New Zealand is obviously really well known for its its really unique wildlife because of the way it it develops as a country Um, and they're attempting to be predator free uh, in the next five or ten years. (laughs) So North Island I think is predator free 22 25 and then south is 2050 so if you want to yeah if you're interested in animals you can't see anywhere else uh, new zealand's a great place to go um on top of being just a an english-speaking country which makes it very easy uh being incredibly progressive so it doesn't really matter who you are you'll you'll be welcome there 
and just having spectacular scenery. And I say that's that's often what it's used for, especially in in films. So you'll get the best of all of those worlds. From there, we headed north. Um, so we kind of headed into the most more volcanic part of uh, New Zealand. Our stop was in Rotorua. Taupo. 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 Taupo on the edge of the lake first. Uh, we only stopped there for a day. There wasn't much shaking. Um, just a few walks locally to a little bit of a the, local gorge. So Taupo, you can walk to the Hooker Falls, which is pretty spectacular. It's a huge volume of water. Um, again, it's glacial glacier water so it's a beautiful blue like crystal blue color you can do jet boat tours right up to the falls which which we didn't do we also visited craters of the moon which is a place of geothermal activity so much like you'd see in iceland kind of steam coming out of the ground that kind of sulfurous smell what i would say is probably not worth the entry fee on that one it's a it's a pretty quick walk around you can see it from outside the park I would say you're not missing anything if you give that one a miss. There are better places to see geothermal activity. And as we became acutely aware, um, there's plenty of sulfur in Rotorua. So if that's what you're looking for, you'll get more than you want <laughs> when you arrive in Rotorua um, because there's a lot of geothermal activity around there. Although if, you, if you're going to, see, going to the area to see some geothermal activity, then the Craters of the Moon is a cheaper option in comparison to places in. Rotorua. So we arrived in Rotorua. Um, like I said, we didn't spend long on the edge of the, um, the the lake there. We arrived in Rotorua to spend a few days there. It's kind of the home of Maori culture, and for, in, in a touristy way, really. There are kind of Maori villages on the outside of Rotorua that are popular with tourists and um, that you can go visit. That are some that are lived in all, all year round. You know, they are the actual homes of the the local Maori people. Some that are more like maori themes show homes yes um where they are legitimately maori families that live in the local area they have their heritage there um and they show you kind of maori tradition we did one of those it came with food at the end uh it did traditional dancing um hunting uh doing the hacker of course um and all that kind of stuff lots of singing and dancing really interesting but it did feel a little bit like Butlins. Uh, we- wheeling the Maori out, yeah, and them doing done. a dance, and then wheeling them back again. Like you were going to a Maori zoo. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't definitely not the most authentic experience. There's, there's, there will be more authentic experiences you can get, but an interesting look at Maori culture and really interactive. It was really engaging, very interesting, and like spectacular performance. So yeah, no, that was it. Was an experience. Um, and if you're in Rotorua, it's kind of one of the things to do. It is the, it is really the only thing to do in Rotorua, unless you want to go out on the lake on a boat, go and visit a geothermal spa or a Maori village. That's basically your three options, really. Portland was our next stop. And we did a few day trips out from there, uh, including probably the most memorable one to... The most touristy thing you could do in New Zealand after a bungee jump. It's Hobbiton. Hobbiton. Yeah. Obviously, you can't go to North Island without a trip to Hobbiton. I've got to say, it was, it was just like Disneyland. Like, in yeah. terms of, you think, oh, this is, oh, should we do this? Like, really? So it's going to be a field. Are we going to Hobbiton? It was a really good experience. Yeah. And it is 
properly laid on for the tourists and they give you exactly what you want. You get to stand in front of proper Hobbit doors on the set. The set itself was rebuilt for the Hobbit movies. And then after filming, actually, it's been significantly embellished since then um, because a lot of it got taken by Peter Jackson. He owned, he basically has the real Hobbiton uh, at his place. So then they made it very tourist friendly by embellishing it, you know, putting more props out, making it more like a real life living Hobbit village. And it's spectacular. It's like a really nice little village. Uh, it doesn't matter how dead the grass is in the summer around. It's, it's well watered. Yeah. It's beautifully green. The tree on top of um, Bag End is artificial, so you'll always get a spectacular picture of the tree over Bag End, um, no matter what time of year you go. And it all concludes with beer included and a little bit of food, uh, if you want it, at the Green Dragon. At the Green Dragon, so the pub uh, at the end of, of the village. It was just really nice. Like, it's, it's interesting. If you've watched the films, you'll recognise all the locations. But yeah, it's, it's awesome. If you just switch your brain off, and em- embrace your inner nerd and don't think about how much money the landowner is getting per ticket. <laughs> it's, aw- it's awesome. The instant you think about those things, it's depressing. But yeah, it's, if you're in North Island, you have to go. Even if you don't like The Hobbit, you have to do it because it's just... It's just very quaint. It's, it's, very it's, cool. it's Instagram goals. Like, you have to do it. <laughs> And you can visit there from Rotorua or from Auckland. You could day trip it from either way. We rented another car in Auckland, same company that we used in the south because I found them to be pretty cheap and reliable. So we day tripped out by driving out there. There are other kind of stuff to to day trip out and see. We went out to um, a free garden. Hamilton Gardens. Hamilton Gardens. It's like Um, Hamilton Gardens is like a permanent Chelsea flower show where like... They have all the separate little gardens, so each space is, has a different theme. So there's like Asian, Indian, Turkish, American, Canadian. Um, there was a surrealist garden. It was just, it was just awesome. Um, we made the mistake. Wasn't a mistake. We didn't know, but we we went on probably what was the busiest day of the year because it was a bank holiday or a public holiday, and um, so it's absolutely heaving. So not necessarily as enjoyable as it might have been strolling around with just 10 or so people there. There were thousands of people there, but it was really cool. In the other day trip that we took out, other than the Black Beaches, was to um, the German village. So the origin of this is that German settlers come over to New Zealand, much the same as the French village in the south, um, they set the place up basically as a little Germany. It had very much that kind of architecture. Um, they maintained the language there for a long time. And it was just, yeah, an interesting bit of history. It's really just maybe a mile and a half, two miles of road with, with buildings on either side, but actually quite quaint. Yeah, just just a nice little place to visit. It's a, it's a strange little place that would not have survived had it not been for the Maori people coming to the rescue of these settlers. Um, they were basically missold this piece of land that was basically just rubbish land that local people couldn't like couldn't do anything with they couldn't get any crops to grow the livestock wouldn't survive or whatever so they convinced these germans to come over oh this good fertile land and then when they got there these people had no idea they'd come from more urban backgrounds the Maori people came and showed them how to get the land to work for them 
so that town's called uh, Puhoi, P-U-H-O-I. It's not far outside uh, outside of the city. Um, you can day trip out there. We did another walking tour whilst we were there as well, which was fairly interesting. Like all major cities, there's lots of, there's lots to see and interesting local history. Um, that a local guide, one of those free walking tours where they just kind of go for tips. So that was that was basically the end of our New Zealand tour, south to north. Thoroughly recommended. Really, really just a spectacular and really manageable island in much the same way that some of the other countries we've been to you could do in a few weeks this one was one of those where you really could see the best of new zealand in in a few weeks if you really crammed it in you could probably do it in less than two weeks but you would not stop in any space Mm -hmm. for any place for a particularly long period of time you'd probably have to drive yourself but yeah a a beautiful place um, and really manageable there's certain times of the year where you could do it for longer and stay and work if you wanted to especially during the wine season um and going through Hawke's Bay and Marlborough um there were people who would were getting off the Kiwi bus and they were going to go and work for a little while and then carry on with their journey so when you buy your Kiwi ticket it's valid for a year a year yeah so you could start your journey in January and then not get back on the bus until September and then you, you don't, there's no pressure to to take your journey all in one go in the short space of time. Your ticket is valid for 12 months and to use however you however you wish on your selected route. You're just going to keep going in the same direction. Yeah, but it's a it's a, like would recommend the Kiwi experience for for anyone really, like couples or solo travellers of any age. Um, there was definitely we definitely went the least popular direction um going north to south most people started yeah south to north even um most people started in auckland and then go down one side or go all the way around north island and then go all the way around south island so there's definitely a vibe of not a party but like you kind of get if you go that way you end up with like a solid group of people so if you are on your own it's a good company to book with because you will meet people who are taking the same journey as you or like you will meet somebody that you can continue your journey with so that was, yeah that was the end of new zealand uh we headed back to brisbane and picked up our our big bags uh, so we just done did carry on for that one um like we usually do for a a trip of kind of only a couple of weeks just we knew what the weather was going to be so we could take limited uh, amount of kit which kept our costs down when we were flying back in Brisbane for a few days uh, to pick up a kit, kind of say goodbye. And then that was, that was the end of our trip to Australasia. Then we, uh, we did a bit of planning. We didn't know where in Southeast Asia we wanted to finish up in or start in. Um, so there was a bit of kind of throwing a dart against uh, the map to see where we might start. And there was some really good deals on, on flights around that time. So it was also a case of where was the cheapest place for us to fly into to then kind of start our journey and that turned out to be thailand so that's where we started our, our journey in southeast asia the prices for the flights from brisbane to phuket were like significantly slashed i think we paid 200 dollars each or less than that for our tickets from brisbane to phuket and normally they're like 700 dollars each so yeah we lucked out on that one um i mean it wasn't a good airline no no in-flight meal no OTV. entertainment no comfort 
Um, so yeah, there's a reason it was a two like a hundred pound flight. If it had been more regular prices, we probably would have done a shorter flight as our first flight, and then kind of hopped our way up. Um, but as it was, we we did a big chunk of the journey um, in one go by going straight up to Thailand. Uh, it flew into Bangkok, and then an internal flight down to Phuket, and that was our starter for ten. And that's where we'll pause the trip report for now. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this part of their journey. I've certainly loved reliving my own travels through Josh and Annie's trip, as I did a similar trip back in 2007. If you haven't been to Australia or New Zealand, I hope this has inspired you to go there when we are able to, as they are such fantastic countries, and I think that really comes across from this episode. As usual, you can reach out to me over on Instagram and Facebook. Take a screen grab and tag Trip Report in your stories as it really makes my day to see you are listening. Do you have a trip planned? I'd love to have you on this podcast. You can message me on my social channels or email me contacttripreport at gmail.com. Next time, I continue the chat with Josh and Annie. That episode is out at the same time as this one, so you can listen straight away if you want to. We finish off their epic journey with Southeast Asia and find out how COVID ended their nine-month trip early and all the dramas that went with that. As usual with their episodes, still tons of tips and tricks for travel, so go and have a listen. Until next time, travel well and travel safe.